Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And it is my honor to welcome today on our program, retired United States Marine Corps General Jim Jones, who served as the nation's 22nd National Security Advisor, the 14th Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, and the 32nd Commandant of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, he now heads Jones Group uh, International and joins us here on the sixth week of Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. General Jones, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Bago, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a great, great pleasure to be with you. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Huntington Ingalls Industries is sponsoring our coverage next week of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. Uh, sir, you know, there's so many questions I want to ask, but I just want to start with sort of how this ends, right? Everybody is regarding this conflict as the end of the post-Cold War period uh, and the beginning maybe of a hotter competition between democracies uh, and autocratic states like Russia uh, and, and, and China. Um, from, from your standpoint, um, how does this end? Yeah, I, th I mean, it's a good question, and, and it's, it's the one that everybody's talking about. I don't think there's anyone that really knows how this ends at this point. Um, uh, my, my personal belief is that there ought to be a, a global outcry um, directed at Mr. Putin to stop the killing before any any serious negotiations take place. I mean, it ought to be something akin to President Reagan's Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall type of proclamation, but heard around the world. And, and uh, you know, even Vladimir Putin uh, could respect that, particularly with the increasing isolation of the Russian Federation. Um, now there are certain there are certain options. One is that he's not going to be satisfied until he conquers all of Ukraine, uh, or he's going to be satisfied with uh, uh, the, the the regions that he originally claimed as being part of Russia, you know, the Donbas region and others, something like the Crimea uh, incursion uh, and the one in Georgia. Um, but um, and there could be maybe for some reason, a, a ceasefire of some sort that holds. Um, I don't really know how it ends, but I know that the more that Vladimir, I think I know that the more Vladimir Putin continues in this way, um, he is he is losing, as we say in the Air Force's airspeed and altitude and gearing himself up for a crash landing, both personally and uh, diplomatically um, around the world. So, um, you know, there are certain things that when this started that the uh, pundits uh, were, were predicting that uh, there would be a lightning strike to Kiev. It'll take uh, three, four days uh, before the Russians, you know, capture the capital. And, um, and that will be it. And people were just hoping that he wouldn't go any further. Um, that didn't happen for for a couple of reasons. One is the Russians are not the the giant 
military giant that people thought they were. They're obviously not well-trained. They don't have uh, integrated command and control systems. They don't even have a good combined arms approach. And the Ukrainians have shown themselves to be far better at, uh, in the defense of their country than anybody thought possible. So that has altered the equation. Uh, no lightning strike, no, no real visible uh, uh, victory for the Russians anytime soon. And uh, Lord knows how many uh, casualties are being sent back to Russia. Um, so uh, so I, I don't know how this ends, but um, I do think that the world can put enough pressure on Vladimir Putin to make him stop the killing b- before withdrawing his troops to an agreed upon solution. You know, you indicated that, uh, you know, we do need to have a much, much longer term uh, approach to this, right? Because, you know, um, he is the absolute power uh, in Russia, and we're hoping uh, that there can be a people's uprising or those around him will rise up, and that might not actually uh, be the case. The The president got a little bit of criticism in, you know, when he said, uh, for God's sakes, this man can't remain in power, and it obscured, unfortunately, what was a terrific address on the president's part uh, to make the case for democracies to stand up to autocracies. Uh, and, and he did set uh, a, a little bit, as you said, sir, uh, a Reagan-like, um, you know, s- setting this up as, you know, it is an evil empire, that this continues as long as this man is in charge. What is the long-term approach to this, right? What what sort of plan do we have? Because some people are thinking, oh, you know, P- Putin has signed his uh, death sentence with this. He is running out of altitude uh, and airspeed, as you said, but he also has a tendency of surviving, and he's willing to grind the Russian people down. And it's not abundantly clear. Many Russians believe state propaganda. What's the long-term strategy here to deal with this man? Well, I think I, I think um, how this ends with regard to Putin is very important because there are other uh, tyrants watching. Uh, President Xi, for one, uh, the, the leader of North Korea and the Ayatollah in Iran and, and probably many others who are watching what what happens to Vladimir Putin personally when uh, when this is over is he is he allowed to represent Russia in the United Nations is he allowed to be invited to the economic forums is he allowed to come to the Munich Security Forum is he allowed to participate in climate change conferences and so on and so forth and my my personal view is he's forfeited that right uh, he is, uh, I think, appropriately labeled as a war criminal. And every day, the indictments that would could be levied against him grow steeper and steeper. And and I think that there should be no 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 question about the 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 consequences of his actions in this 21st century world we live in, which is supposed to be one of you know peace and dialogue and resolving differences through diplomacy. Uh, I think he's forfeited that right. And he he may be able to be welcome in, in Beijing and, and, and North Korea or Iran or other places like that, but not not in the civilized world. I think he's forfeited that right. And I think that I don't know if there's a way to expel individuals from the United Nations, but if there is, they should expel them from the United Nations. That's my, my personal view. <laughs> 
you know, there is a lot of debate. Um, the administration looks like it's forward leaning regarding systems to send there. We understand that the Pentagon does have some reservations with this that bubbled up with Tony Blinken saying that he, you know, seemed to be warned to the idea of MIGs, uh, Polish MIGs going uh, to Ukraine. And and that was uh, sort of vetoed by the by the Pentagon, ultimately. Um, yeah. If you if you have a sovereign nation with a functioning democratic government that's under an unprovoked attack, shouldn't all weapons be considered defensive at this point? I mean, should we be self-deterring ourselves? Well, I think up to a point, um, uh, you want to be very careful about uh, anyone crossing the nuclear threshold for obvious reasons. Um, but I think that um, you know, I mean, I, I, I I've listened to the debate on on uh, no-fly zones and things like that. that that's fairly impractical to do if you do it from a NATO country because you're, you're really bringing NATO into it. But there is a humanitarian catastrophe going on. And it seems to me that rather than playing mother may I with Vladimir Putin, we should just declare and could declare easily because we know how to do it, that there will be humanitarian airlifts uh, going into Ukraine and resupplying uh, civilians who are starving or were cold or have no place, uh, nothing to, no, no home to sleep, uh, sleep in with um, the kind of supplies that they needed. And it could be that those flights would be escorted by uh, fighter jets initially, but with clear, clear statements that we're not looking to engage uh, the Russian uh, Air Force, but we will respond if fired upon. And uh, so I think there, there could be a a no combat air corridor, if you will, while the while the aircraft are flying in there. But it clearly it's a humanitarian catastrophe. We we know how to do these things. We did it in the Balkans, you know, with the uh, with the encircled uh, Muslim enclaves. Um, we resupplied them by air, uh, and I think I, I think that's a legitimate uh, international function that doesn't trip the. Uh, NATO combat wire uh, any more than it has to be. Are we, do you think, too concerned? You know, there, there was this case, as, as you said, right? I mean, the Russian military is not 10 feet tall, but it does have nuclear weapons. And we have looked to that and sort of danced around it, even though he is the aggressor in this circumstance, and we're certainly not attacking Russia uh, proper. How do we need to think about his nuclear capability and his residual military capability, right? It, how likely is it he will conventionally attack someplace else in, you know, against NATO, right? I mean, some of this just doesn't make any sense because he may be unhinged, but he's not completely crazy nor stupid. Yeah, I, I don't buy into the fact that he's unhinged. I think he's got some deep-seated beliefs about NATO and, and and how Russia got to where it is today and you know but if you study his background you know that deep down inside he's a hardline communist and the and, and the worst day of his life was when the Soviet Union imploded uh, so and that and that's something that he feels almost messianic about in terms of restoring the the buffer states uh, he deeply deeply re- believes that NATO uh, broke a promise that was made, albeit there's nothing in writing anywhere, but a promise not to expand into the former Warsaw Pact countries. Um, 
and and you know frankly at the outset of this thing if you know we we may not we may have been able to avoid this this conflict if we had given the the proper assurances that there was no plan to to bring the ukraine into into nato anytime soon which which would have made sense to a lot of people but uh, i don't know what went on behind closed doors there but i know that that's 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 a, a a clear red line and has been for vladimir putin for a long time and so you're not one of these people who thinks you, you you're not as concerned about his nuclear threats at this point as others are right well, i mean so well he i mean you know he didn't get rid of his tactical nukes so that's a concern uh, we did get rid of ours. Um, so the escalation uh, possibility is always something to look to look forward to there. Uh, but I, I think if he uses chemical weapons or nuclear weapons, then I then I think you're at a different you're in a different uh, level of of uh, engagement where the the possibility of NATO having to intervene uh, is you know, might be considered. Um, let me ask you about the mistakes that got us here, right? You mentioned, you know, the, the administration gets high marks for its response uh, in bringing the world together, isolating Russia, sanctioning it, um, trying to cut off its global technology flows and showing that we're in a completely different era. But there are those who also make the criticism, look, if if we had had left our troops there and actually augmented the, the U.S. Uh, and allied footprint, uh, as some of our partners uh, suggested uh, that we should do together, uh, that we could have actually avoided this. From from your standpoint over the last sort of three decades, what do you think are the lessons, the mistakes, the weaknesses that got us here that we need to learn from? Uh, as, as, as you said, right? I mean, the administration has even made clear everything we're doing in this instance is actually to deter Xi from making a similar miscalculation in, in Taiwan. What are the mistakes that got exactly, us here? That, 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 your last point there is exactly right. Exactly right. Not just not just President Xi, but all all dictators, all all dictators who oppress uh, their people uh, should be watching this very closely, and make no mistake that that the consequences should be clear and visible and perpetual, longstanding consequences. So the mistakes that brought us here, I think, go back in time um, to, um, you know, maybe several administrations where we have signaled uh, going all the way back to, you know, the Bush 40, 43 administration that signaled um, a, a certain uh, lack of uh, leadership or a signal a lack of commitment to the alliance. Um, and, um, and and there's a lot of examples to illustrate that that the United States looked looked upon our NATO allies with a certain amount of contempt and disdain for not living up to the two percent GDP guarantee that everybody agreed to, um, and uh, so on and so forth. Um, and 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 I think our our European allies and and many friends and allies in other parts of the world that are not NATO countries, but notably in the Middle East and, and uh, in Africa and even in our own hemisphere, have had the impression for the last few administrations that, you know, fundamentally the U.S. is disengaging 
in their regions. Um, and I hear that even today in my civilian capacity. I still travel and do a lot of work in different, different, uh, on different continents. And I hear that. Uh, you're no longer interested in us. Uh, if you were, you'd be here more frequently. Um, or you'd be helping us in, in different ways. Whereas the Chinese are where we send one person, they send 25. And, and our one person won't come back for a year. They'll come back in three months. So it's um, it, it it is a you know true or not it is the the mantle that we bear uh, and especially in the Middle East today I'm very concerned about the fact that you know we let ambassadors like John Abizade who was a great ambassador leave his post in January of 2021 and if you if you look today there is no ambassador in Saudi Arabia there is no ambassador in the United Arab Emirates. Those those actions um, uh, draw people to conclusions that are not in our best interest, and and I do think that we are at a point where maybe this is the the galvanizing point to show that the U.S. is back, you know, not just in words but in deeds. But if if we capitalize on the opportunities here for us to correct um, things that have been uh, interpreted in ways that are negative to our self-interest, um, we, we, could, we, we could still turn this around. I do think, I mean, I think everybody agrees, or at least most people agree, that the administration was slow to, uh, to, slow to respond, and there may have been some things that could have been done that would have prevented this um, invasion of a sovereign nation. What do you think some of those things um, could have been, right? Do you think a, a, an allied troop deployment Maybe, you know what I mean? It, it almost seems to me that we're not doing the ounce of prevention so often. This is something that you used to talk about when you were a or when you were a commandant, <laughs> um, right? I mean, yep. an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure at the end of the day. Um, and we, we, you know, so what are the things that we could have done before, uh, right, to have stopped? People are looking at this as a failure of integrated deterrence. I'm, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that's the case, but from from your standpoint, <laughs> yeah. what are the things that we could have done differently? Well, uh, I mean, the one thing that would have been hard to undo, I think, is Putin's perception that NATO was at its weakest uh, point in terms of how the U.S. was perceived, uh, the leadership that that we uh, may or may not have provided that, that it gave people a sense that, no, 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 they're serious about Article 5 and and the U.S. is still engaged. I think, I think Vladimir Putin mis- really badly miscalculated, um, and and certainly what's happening now in NATO is is his worst nightmare. The, the coming together, the cohesion, uh, the U.S. leadership, all of that uh, seems to be back on the table, and that is certainly something that that he didn't uh, he didn't plan on. As to what we could have done, you know. Um, when I was in NATO 2003 to 2007, I guess, January, um, we used to have uh, uh, troop exercises in Ukraine with NATO troops. We had exercises with Ukraine. At, in those days, the, the Russians were active members of the NATO-Russia Council, and they came to all the meetings. Uh, I, I became, I thought, friends with the... Uh, 
the head of the uh, Russian military. Uh, he came to my house in Belgium. And I visited him in Moscow. I laid a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier for Russia. Uh, I, I really thought that we were moving in the right direction of having Russia eventually conclude that they wanted to be inside the Euro-Atlantic arc as opposed to outside. Fast forward a few years later as National Security Council um, for the first two years under President Medvedev, with um, Vladimir Putin being the prime minister. We cooperated in exchanging intelligence information on Iran's nuclear projects. Uh, the Russians voluntarily canceled the sale of the S-300s. Uh, as a result of the, us proving to the Russians that they were building secret uh, labs uh, for developing uh, uh, nuclear, enriching uh, uranium and building nuclear weapons. Uh, the relationship between President Obama and President Medvedev was, I would say, very close to ideal. And that lasted until just after we signed the START Treaty. Um, and, uh, and then Vladimir Putin became president again. And then things started, things started going badly and have, have, gone, have gotten worse ever since, obviously. So, you know, I, I think, you know, going back to your question, what, what could we have done? Um, I, I'm not sure that Putin and his generals had concluded that NATO w is more of a marshmallow than a uh, than a stumbling block, and that um, they believe that uh, uh, they ma they made their judgments about our commander in chief and what they thought he would do and not do, um, and um, to the extent that our discussions about NATO and Ukraine uh, were not persuasive enough to convince him not to invade. Those, those are some of the things that I think historians will have to take a look at. Um, I do think that had we had uh, international troops there working with the uh, Ukrainians, um, you know, I think that that may have forced all things, but um, one will never know that where we are where we are. Um, let me ask you about, you know, you, you um, uh, talked about um, the many failures of, of Russian forces, right? I think everybody is uh, stunned at the poor condition of the troops, the poor leadership, uh, the tactical mistakes, um, you know, I mean, just the sheer number of uh, Russian general officers who've lost their live, uh, lives in this campaign. So there's a tendency now, right? It's always a mistake to see your adversary as 10 feet tall, but it's also potentially problematic to see them as four feet tall. And there are some in NATO and in Europe who are saying, hang on a second, you know, we were surging resources and worrying about this when we thought they were 10 feet tall. They're four feet tall, right? How do we need to think about Russian capabilities in a more nuanced sort of way? It, it, just because they completely screwed this up does not necessarily mean that they might not, that they will screw it up again in the future, right? I mean, even though, I mean, their tactics and capabilities are, are sort of more tuned to, you know, blunt force, depopulation, bomb hospitals and where people live, right? More Aleppo, Grozny than it is sophisticated the yeah, way we do it. But how do we need to think yeah. about their military capability going forward? Well, I think, um, you know, I think it's pretty much evident that, um, and, and, and frankly, back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we did some uh, interchanges with the Russian military, with the uh, U.S. Army in, in Europe. Uh, you know, they have no NCO Corps, for example. 
um, the the lieutenants do do the work that our sergeants do. Um, they they don't have a concept of combined arms. There, it's obvious that the land forces and the air forces and the naval forces are not able to coordinate their uh, their movements. So they're they are 20 years behind, uh, or maybe more, uh, what what the West Western armies uh, are doing. However, they do have nuclear weapons, and 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 that's something that uh, you have to you have to you know, take into consideration. Um, but but it really is. Uh, I mean, they've for for those of us who have always believed in the validity of the tank. I mean, the the anti-tank weapons that are out there today are just killing tanks right and left. I don't know how many they've lost, but it's in the hundreds. Um, so they're going there's some real lessons learned for for all of us in watching how the how the how the Russians uh, are deploying. And you know, frankly, I think one of the questions Vago is how much longer can he afford to do this? Because you know, the Russian GDP is when they started this was roughly what the size of New York State. So that's not that's not a lot for a sovereign country to to take to the table if they want to conduct a an invasion of a country the size of uh, of the Ukraine. I don't know how much longer he can he can afford it. Which which brings up the question is whether China is is, is helping him bankroll this thing. Um, let, let me ask you uh, about that um, and and three questions in the roughly the five minutes or so we we've got left. So what are the lessons we should be learning now to more effectively deter Xi from making the same miscalculation in China? What are we getting right here? that you think can be applied or getting wrong that needs to be modified and, and applied to, to China? Because ultimately we're trying to help the Chinese as much as we're trying to defend the Taiwanese, right? Yeah, I know about the defense part. I'm not sure about the, <laughs> I'm not sure about helping the Chinese. Uh, I think, no, well, helping, helping the Chinese from making think, a miscalculation that, that's bad but, for but them I'll as well you, as how I mean. I'll be, I'll be happy to tell you that I think that what we should be doing with Taiwan right now is making sure that the Chinese know that the Taiwanese uh, have the capability to make an invasion horribly costly. Um, you know, the the Ukrainian spirit and the will to fight is something that has really been the, the, game, the game changer here uh, against the Russians. Uh, if the Taiwanese have the same, uh, the same will to fight and to defend their their homeland, and they have uh, already have the equipment to do so rather than doing it reactively, which is in large part one of the things that was a mistake in Ukraine. But but we should, I believe we should absolutely make it clear that the um, that the Taiwanese have the ability to make this, if any of China ever tries to take them by force, that make it extremely costly. Uh, and I think that we should do that as a matter of preparation uh, in the event that Mr. Xi is drawing the wrong conclusions. Now, do you think that the uh, the force of the economic penalties against Russia are sufficient to make the Chinese pause? Or do you think the Chinese look at it fundamentally differently? You know, I think that they, they might be. I mean, I, I, I think the people you really want to affect are, are the leaders. Uh, and and putting uh, 
persona non grata placards around their around the the main leadership and stripping them of their of their power and wealth to the extent that we can that is something that the the regimes of the world really understand they they they've shown that they don't care much about the people but they do care a lot about themselves and to the extent that we can uh, make their lives uh, miserable and uncomfortable uh, in the way of travel, in the way of what they can afford, in the way of where they go, I think is 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 excellent. I do I do hope that the Russians, the the Russian people, find a way to make to make a change in their leadership. But that change will have to come from within. And the same thing in Iran, same thing in China. Same thing in North Korea. Same thing, you know. Everywhere people are oppressed by uh, tyrannical leaders. Uh, there, there has to be a homegrown, uh, deep-seated belief that they don't want to live like this anymore. And it, sooner or later, that's what happens. You know, there are some who looked at President Biden's uh, comments uh, about Putin, uh, whether he's a war criminal uh, or saying, you know. Um, you know, that we've got to get rid of this guy uh, effectively. Um, do you think that he was right in making those statements? And what's and how important is it to have uh, a moral leader, whatever disagreements you can you have with Joe Biden? Right. He is somebody with a strong sense of right and wrong. Um, how important is it for the president of the United States to be making statements like that, because it is a little bit akin to Ronald Reagan calling the Soviet Union the evil empire. The difference was he became a hero to everybody in the Soviet Union when he said it, because they all knew they lived in an evil empire. Ultimately, I, I think it's perfectly OK for the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, to speak to the populations of, of the world who are being oppressed by bad leader. and. Um, you know, you it may be not diplomatic to say I, I, I call on you to rise up against this evil man, but there are ways of doing that uh, uh, in a way that shows that not only educates educates these the, the the Russian people in this case what what the Russian military is doing. I mean, the, their strategy is to, as far as I can see, it is. Is to is to kill everybody in Ukraine, rid 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 them of Ukrainians, and then populate them with Russians or, or Russian sympathizers. I mean, that's the only justification I can see for going after cities as an equal target to the Ukrainian military. That I mean, that that if that's not a war crime, I don't know what is. Um, so, um, you know, I I think that. Uh, you know, they'll, the pundits will debate, you know, whether it's the right words or anything else. But I, I, I think every American president should stand up for the values that we have articulated almost since the, the, the foundation of our company, of our country, uh, and should be heard on, on the subject of human rights and abuses that are being perpetrated and atrocities that are being perpetrated. And uh, I, I have no problem with referring to the president referring to Vladimir Putin as a war criminal, because I think that's exactly what he is. And, and last thing uh, I, I want to get your sense on. So should we, if, if I may, just one uh, intermediate question. 
if Putin already thinks that we're trying to um, unseat him from power, doesn't that suggest that we could actually be somewhat more open about making it clear that that is our goal or, or that it is something that we would support and message a little bit more thoughtfully to the Russian people? Yeah. That outcome? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, we have instruments. We have, uh, yeah, we used to have Voice of America was broadcast all over Eastern Europe during the Cold War. And there's, there are ways to get the message out. We do it, we do it uh, through the Iranian resistance uh, in Tehran today um, with, with, uh, with uh, groups that are opposed to the regime and, 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 uh, and we should, I think we should send that message. We stand for, we stand for that. We stand for the the dignity of man and, and uh, humanitarian treatment of all people. They can choose the form of government they want, but for the governments who uh, abuse people and, and don't abide by rule of law and normal civilized standards, they should be called out for it. And I think it's well within the purview of the president of the United States to do so in ways that are considered appropriate. Now, let me ask you one last question, sir. Um, what do you like about what the administration is doing, and where do you think they can improve? I think um, I think the uh, the world that we live in today uh, is vastly different than just twenty years ago. Um, the demands on national decision making by a superpower um, are extremely high. The the Chinas and the Russians of the world who are led by dictators don't have the the same uh, restrictions that we have in terms of a decision. They they make them very quickly. Um, we are still a little bit uh, in, a little bit behind in our ability to uh, process uh, you know, real world incidents and come up with a. Uh, a, a plan that that um, makes sense in, in its implementation. Um, you know, the, the the withdrawal from Kabul was an unmitigated disaster, uh, and 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 uh, you know, I hope we learn lessons from that, and, and we never see anything like that again. But it but it comes it comes about as a result, I think within the interagency of not being able to coalesce and to come up with a clear plan of action that is then disseminated in this case to the military or whoever the, the prime movers are, but so that it could be operationally implemented and, and at a tactical level uh, be executed. So I've said this, I said this when I, when I worked for a president, I said, we have to become more agile and we have to be able to do more than one or two things at once. And, and that calls for, in my view, um, a, a, a pretty massive um, reorganization of the State Department in particular um, in, in the way it addresses uh, its diplomacy and, and the United States influence around the world. It is underfunded. It always has been. Um, it, it, it's somewhat reflective of the fact that deep down inside, a lot of our elected uh, members of Congress, uh, you know, kind of have an isolationist tendency. 
But the State Department, properly organized, trained and equipped, uh, is really, really important. And it's the one institution that can help us prevent wars. But because the Defense Department is funded at such a much higher level, it's the one that that's the department that people actually probably listen to as much, if not more than the State Department. So that's a whole different topic. And we don't have we don't have time for it. But there's some ex- excellent work done by the Atlantic Council over the years regarding the State Department and ways in which it, c- it can be enhanced. And I, 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 I say that with full admiration of all of the people who serve uh, as, as members of that particularly important department. But a lot of them I know that I've talked to over the years wish it were organized a little bit differently. And, sir, we will have you uh, back on the program to discuss that uh, very issue. And maybe we can be joined by uh, Ambassador Link Bloomfield, uh, a mutual friend who's uh, thought deeply about the issue. Sir, always an honor and a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time. Really appreciate it and can't wait to have you back on. It's always a pleasure. And thank you. And uh, uh, if you bring Link Link Bloomfield on this show, uh, that would be terrific. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.